those words are not meaningless words. And many believers have given their lives for the sake of the gospel. And serving Christ does come at high cost. In fact, he said to his disciples, unless you deny yourself and take up your cross, you can't be my disciple. We don't always understand all the costs that it will be. There's a line in that song that talks about agonizing questions and um, losing all that we hold dear. Many of you are aware that uh, Jim and Sharon Fathenross' granddaughter, seven-year-old, um, Elena Weeb, uh, that's Rebecca's daughter, husband, Andreas, um, that she uh, tragically drowned this week uh, up at camp there in Uranium City. Um, they've canceled camp for the, the coming weeks. Uh, you can imagine the how difficult uh, they had to search for a body for a day or so, and, um, and they did recover her. So we rejoice with those that rejoice. We weep with those that weep. Um, of course, we have long-standing relationship with Jim and Sharon and the camp up there. Um, this also touches um, just Heather's sister's daughter, so her niece, Heather Wolf, and that family, and then uh, Adam Schaefer, uh, Ray, Sha Ray, Ray and Sarah Schaefer's um, son is married to another one of the Fathenroth um, daughters. So uh, they had a funeral yesterday and a burial, and they'll be having a memorial service later uh, down in Alberta, Canada, a little easier place to get to. But um, do pray for this family. I do know just in the early days that God has given um, really almost miraculous kind of of peace to the family and has given multiple opportunities to share the gospel. And we're praying that, you know, it's, it's hard to imagine um, what could possibly be worth the, the death, the tragic death of a seven-year-old. Uh, but we're praying that God will use this tragedy to usher others in, into the kingdom. We know that uh, she's safe, um, and yet you know, the brokenness, um, the wound of it all opens up opportunities for the gospel that are really unusual, and we're praying that many will end up coming to faith uh, because of Elena's uh, short life. Um, God knows God's ways are best, but there is cost, and we want to be praying for this family. In fact, before I preach this morning, uh, let's go to the Lord and just pray. Uh, for this family. God, we thank you for little Elena, and God, when we look into her sweet face, it's just hard to imagine what it'd be like to say goodbye for a time. We're so grateful that now she looks on your face, for she was a believer. We pray for her brother. We pray for the rest of her family. We pray for her parents, her grandparents, her uncles, uh, great-uncles, God, and, and, and aunts. Uh, God, we pray for you to make yourself known to this family in this time of deep grief and pain. We pray, God, that you would take this little life and that you would plant life in many others through her testimony and through the testimony of her family as they work through this difficult time. 
We pray as a church family that we might be sure to keep this dear family uh, in our prayers and do what we can to comfort them uh, with our love for them. And God, we look forward to the day when things like this uh, will be long, long forgotten history and when we will understand how this all worked together uh, for your grand purpose. We thank you, God, that neither death nor life can separate us from your love. And we pray we might live in that love this day. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. I do want to thank uh, Paul Bixby for teaching Second John the last couple Sunday mornings um, while we took some time off. We're going to go to Third John this morning. It's a companion letter uh, dealing with similar themes, whereas Second John was written to a local church that John calls the elect lady. Third John, he writes to an individual named Gaius, evidently a leader in the church. The letter is personal, mentioning two others by name, Diotrephes and Demetrius, one an example of a leader gone bad, and the other with a testimony of doing good. This brief letter uh, probably took only uh, one papyrus sheet, one sheet of paper uh, to write it, gives us personal insight into the church life uh, at the end of the first century, uh, what it was like to be in the communion of saints uh, at that time in church history, and uh, what the inner workings were like, what the challenges were like, and and what the encouraging things are like. And as such, it provides direction for us to live what we know in a way that displays the truth through the practical love that the gospel produces in our lives. So I've modified uh, the series title just slightly. We went that you may know, First John, uh, now that you know, Second John, and now live what you know in 3 John. We're reading verses 1 through 8 this morning. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you, and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God, for they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth." As you look at John's personal letter to Gaius, we see that his interaction with this brother in the Lord is one, first of all, of prayer, verses 1 and 2. It is an interaction characterized by joy, verses 3 and 4. And then we really have the reason for that joy, verses 5 through 8, where he gives commendation for the faithful Christian living that has been testified to regarding Gaius. First, consider with me these first two verses in John's prayer for beloved Gaius. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth, beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. In the New Testament, 
mentions three men named Gaius. One was from Corinth, another was from Macedonia in northern Greece, and another from Derby that was also in Macedonia, the region uh, from which Timothy comes. Various Bible scholars argue for one or other of these three men, but since Gaius was about as common a name in the Roman Empire as John is in the English-speaking world, we really don't know for sure who this Gaius is. We just know that he's serving in this church likely as a leader. The Apostle John refers to himself as the elder, not just because of his advanced age, but because of his leadership role among the churches. And his address to Gaius brims with the affection that we've come to associate with the apostle of love, the apostle John. He calls Gaius beloved, one whom he loves in truth. His love for this brother in Christ has grown in their common reliance and devotion to the truth, that is, the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's this sphere of revealed truth from God in which this love grows and bears fruit among genuine believers with the life of God in their souls. So, truth doesn't remain cold and lifeless. The truth of the gospel is going to naturally, supernaturally produce love. This love permeates those who are relying on the truth. And so, it's fitting that John declares that he prays for this beloved brother in the gospel. We serve our brothers and sisters well when our love goes beyond talking to them about God and goes to talking to God about them. We spend time together here today. We'll talk about the things of God, but I trust that that's not where the conversation ends, that when you go home this afternoon and tonight and through this week, you'll remember your brothers and sisters in Christ and continue the conversation with God talking to them. Prayer for our brothers and sisters in Christ is a priceless gift of love to them. No matter the limitations of time or the physical distance that may lie between us, genuine love for other believers must surely manifest itself in earnest intercession for them if we care about them at all. This is one of the reasons that we have the the, uh, prayer directory. For those of you that our members of the church, you have listed there the members, faces of the members, so that you can be praying for them. And I encourage you to, to make that your stock and trade, that one of the best ways you just continue pouring love into the lives of your brothers and sisters is through praying for them. And you'll notice that John's prayer for Gaius is comprehensive in its scope. It's both soul and body. He's confident that Gaius is healthy of soul, That's evidenced by his faithful love that's expressed toward other believers in practical ways. He's going to talk about that. But but John desires that Gaius will have good health physically as well. Now, why? You would think maybe that would be a lesser concern. That is, unless you're sick or suffering physically, right? We are holistic beings. In other words, we're We are one person. We have body and soul. There's material and immaterial. Um, We have spiritual needs, but they're connected to our emotional needs and our physical needs. You can't can't divide the two. Um, What impacts our bodies marks our souls, and what impacts our souls affects our bodies. The salvation that Christ brings not only regenerates our spirits, 
but will one day resurrect our bodies. We're rescued from sin, and we will one day be rescued from death. Our fallen spiritual state mars our physical existence. In fact, that's often what God uses, that megaphone of pain, as C.S. Lewis calls it, to, to bring us to awareness of our spiritual need. Our salvation must therefore restore both body and soul, both spiritual and physical for it to be complete. And Jesus demonstrated this in His earthly ministry. He had compassion for human suffering, not just suffering that was directly from sin where He grants to a person forgiveness, but also suffering from disease and and from disasters. Jesus brought His almighty healing touch to both soul and body. And, you know, why did He do that? Well, He showed that He cares about that, and He shows that He has both the power and the willingness to rescue us from all of the suffering that sin has brought upon our lives, Not, not just the spiritual suffering, but also the physical suffering right down to death itself. If you think about it, if you read the the Scriptures and what it prophesies about the Messiah, about the Savior King, as you you look at His ministry, His compassion for people, you look at God who created us and made us physical beings, male and female, as well as spiritual beings, uh, how could the Savior King, who's come from God, who is God, how could He do any less than to tend to both body and soul? Our dignity is found in the truth that God has created us as beings that are both physical and spiritual. And when the salvation of Christ is complete, He will have saved every part of us, spiritual and physical. And it's for that reason, then, that we ought to pray for our brothers and sisters regarding every part of their lives. It was Gnosticism, false teaching, that valued the soul but devalued the body. It is right for us to serve the needs of people both spiritually and physically. In fact, have you ever thought about how you would do otherwise? Like, if you're going to show love for a person's who they are in their spirit, how are you going to do that without touching their body? How are you, how are you going to show love to a person with, without showing uh, love to them and what you can see and touch uh, versus what you cannot see and touch? How can you even say that you love a person if, if that love doesn't translate into actual physical expression of that love? If it doesn't turn into words, if it doesn't turn into uh, hugs, if it doesn't turn into helping people with their, their physical need. This is a way that we show that we love people, and it reflects actually the character of God and how He loves us. I mean, think about a God that we go to with our prayer requests is a God that cares about us in every way, and we know that, that the things that happen to us physically impact us spiritually and, and vice versa. So let me encourage you to love your brothers and sisters by praying for them. You can do that far more regularly than nearly any other expression of love available to you. And it really fuels the other expressions. And surely to bring God into the equation of a person's life is the best of all blessings. I mean, think about all that you could do for another person and compare that to all that God could do for that person. Well, it only makes sense, then you ought to be talking to God. I mean, we do this for people, right? When, when we know somebody has a need, 
You know, maybe you don't know how to fix a car, but you know somebody who does. So you're going to bring, you're going to say, hey, you need to see so-and-so. They can fix your car. You need to see, see so-and-so. They can take care of your plumbing or your roof or whatever. We go to the persons who can actually do the job. Well, when you go to God on behalf of another person, you're going to someone who can actually do the job. And it, it shows love to people when you do that. So who are the brothers and sisters in Christ that you genuinely love? And who are the ones for whom you regularly pray? Because the two need to go together. And beyond that, what are you praying for them? Now, hopefully beyond just bless them, you know, bless the missionaries. Hopefully more specific than that. Um, Praying for what you know their needs are. Uh, praying um, what you know from the scriptures, what you know from your interaction with them. Don't limit your petitions to spiritual matters. Ask God's blessing on them in all that they are and do. I mean, you know, we, we, we want to pray for God to prosper one another. We want to pray for God to give one another health. We want to pray that God will, will help us grow in Christ. Everything good that would come from God we want to pray for our brothers and sisters. So prayer marks this relationship of John with Gaius. And then the second thing that marks what he says here is joy. Verse 3, For I rejoice greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. So what is causing such joy to the Apostle John's heart. It's, it's the first-hand testimony from credible witnesses, credible believers, that Gaius is actually walking in the truth. He refers to it as your truth. Gaius has made the truth of the gospel personal in his life, and twice he talks about his walking in the truth. And of course, this is the characteristic way that the New Testament talks about living our daily life, because it literally means walking about. You're walking about in the truth. It, it, in other words, it's not just you're walking from one place to another, or it's not just on special occasions you show faithfulness to God, but it's that as you walk about in your, your everyday, humdrum, normal life, moment-to-moment living, you are doing that in a way that's consistent with the truth, that shows the truth. And this is what brings John such joy. You know, we're joyful when someone makes a profession of faith in Christ. We're joyful uh, to see if they number themselves among those that, that say they're worshipers of God. But what brings John joy is not just that Gaius is, is professing to know Christ. It's that those who have observed Gaius in his daily living give eyewitness testimony that he is living in line with what the gospel teaches about how we're supposed to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly in this case, showing generous hospitality to those who were traveling away from home in order to spread the good news of the gospel. Christian truth cannot remain merely academic and theoretical. It is active and life-changing. It, it transforms one's walkabout life. And if it does not do so, it's either not the gospel truth or the gospel truth has not actually taken root in a person's life. The two have to go together. 
And while we'll, we will fight for doctrinal integrity, if your life doesn't match your doctrine, it casts doubt on that doctrine, and it really casts doubt on your connection to it. History is full of the practical benefits that genuine Christians have brought to others, showing gentle kindness to the vulnerable and the oppressed and the weak, which, by the way, was completely opposite of the honor society that dominated medieval Europe. Um, it, it, you didn't worry about the weak. Um, rather, you grind them under, you take advantage of them. Christians who have built schools and hospitals, who've worked to abolish slavery and other forms of abuse, including the mistreatment and even the destruction and murder of innocent children. These are things that Christians have done throughout history. And many forget the vital role that Christians have played in these arenas. I mean, who would know that the Ivy League schools were founded on the heels of your great awakening in order to, in order to train preachers? Who would know that? Uh, who would think that the hospitals that they go to and the medical care that's offered to those that are broken and, and that are sick was actually originated by those who had a heart for people because they belong to God? And these are forgotten, and, and people revise history to make Christians the villains. And it's true that even genuine born-again Christians can still do harm to people. Why is that? Well, they still commit sin, and sin always does harm. But the pervasive character of the lives of truly born-again Christians is that of goodness and kindness that reflects God, not only toward their brothers and sisters in Christ, but also toward their neighbors and toward all human beings made in God's image. None of us knows who of God's enemies today will become children of God tomorrow through the testimony of the gospel in our faithful, loving words and deeds. What is vital for each of us to keep in mind is that this way of living actually rises naturally, or should we say supernaturally, because it's produced by the Spirit of God who has regenerated every true believer and indwells us so that it shows itself in the everyday walkabout living for, for each believer. You know, it's one thing to put on a good face. It's one thing to, to kind of push toward some special event where now you're going to show goodness. It's another thing 24-7 just to, to live your life and have oozing from that life, coming from that life, this fragrance of goodness, this care for other people. You, you can't fake that. It, it has to come from who you are and, and that God has transformed who you are. The big movements of history are actually the outflow of this kind of lifestyle. They, they grow from the way that Christians live everyday life. So, do the people who know you in the everyday common patterns of your living see you doing good toward those around you? You know, this doesn't have an age limit on it. You, if you're a born-again five-year-old, there ought to be good coming from your life toward the people that live with you and toward the people that know you. It, you know, this isn't like something that you start when you start your career. This is something that starts when you're born again, and it grows in your life. And so, I, I want to look around for those around me that, that I can serve in this loving way. Now, this is far more convincing than what people do in the public eye or even in the big issues of the times. 
Once politics and money and other cultural issues get mixed in, people can find it hard to believe that your good works are genuine rather than just pragmatic or or self-serving. But when you live the goodness of Jesus in the small ways and in the normal routines, the transforming power of the gospel is far more clear to those who observe. And so it's one thing, you know, you see somebody do something in a public arena, the question that comes to mind is, how are they in the private arena? And, and we, we want there to be a correspondence between the two. 1 Peter 2.12, Peter says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, and they did, and they do, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And that suggests that your life of goodness, of benefit toward other people that's just happening regularly, however people might cast you, however they might malign you as a Christian, that ultimately when, they, when they're brought face to face with who you actually are and how you actually live, this, this has such an impact that it actually turns them to faith in Christ so that in the day of visitation, the day of judgment, that they can actually praise God. Thank you, God, for this, this sister in the faith that I knew, this brother in the faith that I knew. I thought Christians were all hypocrites. I thought that it was just a political movement, a money-making scheme, and, and I met this believer, and I saw that person live out their faith in daily life in a way that turned me to Jesus. Third John 1.4, John therefore says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John's reference to his children may mean that Gaius is among those who came to Christ through John's own gospel witness. Uh, Paul refers to Timothy this way, that my children, and we learned this from 1 John, could also refer to believers for whom John cares, just like a parent cares for a child. He talks this way in 1 John about his beloved children. So he may be using that kind of language as well. Either way, what's clear is that John is invested in their lives for the sake of the gospel. And their lives display practical obedience to the truth of God. That brings him joy. The Apostle Paul expresses the same joy over the persecuted yet thriving believers in Thessalonica, which, by the way, that's going to be our next series. Uh, we'll be going into um, First and Second Thessalonians, Faith Under Fire, Thriving in a Hostile World. So that's, that's coming up. Uh, we'll start that up the end of July. But First Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at His coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Later in chapter 3, he says, For now we live, if you're standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we render to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? When you give yourself to the good of others through gospel witness and gospel living, nothing is so satisfying as seeing that they are thriving in that gospel. There's a lot about life that feels unproductive and unfulfilling. But when you see growth and health in the life of lives of people that you love 
It, it makes your gospel efforts feel worth it. It reminds you that, that our labors for Christ actually impact the very shores of eternity because many of the people in whom we're investing become members of our forever family, and they will experience with us the ultimate payoff of a life lived for the Savior King. Christ rescued them and us and made us citizens, fellow citizens of His eternal kingdom. The best is yet to come, and, and yet that best that is to come actually has roots in your day-to-day -day life right now in terms of how, how we're growing in the faith and treating one another. So I ask you this morning, would those close enough to you to observe your walkabout life testify that you are walking in the truth? That there's a clear correspondence between what the gospel teaches and who Jesus is and, and just the cadence of your life, the fragrance of your life. Are you bringing joy into the hearts of those who poured their lives into you for Christ? I mean, this is one of the, the best ways, children that are still in the home, that you can bring joy, and, and I'd say especially as you get into your teen years, to, to bring joy to your parents' hearts. I mean, you know, when, you, when you're a little kid, you know that if you don't act right, you know you're going to get busted, right? Fear drives. But as you, as, as you grow, more and more love ought to motivate what you're, what you're doing. And, and then as you grow into your teen years, young adult years, and you have more capabilities, you can take what you've learned and start actually applying it. And nothing does a Christian parent's heart more good than to see young people, you know, 12, 13, 14, 15, that love Jesus and love other people and, and show it in their daily life. They show it on the ball field. They show it in the classroom. They show it at home with their willingness to help. And by the way, let me say, if you're a grouch at home and you're lazy, you do realize that, that that's the display of an unregenerate heart. Not just not obeying the rules. Because people that belong to Jesus love people. And, and they're willing to work. And they're, they're willing to help. So what your parents are training you to do is they're trying to disciple you in actually serving Jesus. And we all want to be that way wherever we are serving. You know, are you bringing joy to the people who poured their lives into you? Or do they instead see a person fixated on his or her own ambitions and pleasures, oblivious or indifferent to the needs of the individuals around them? Let, we, want, we, want to make, we want to make it a joyful thing for people to know us well by the way that we serve. And then... Verses 5 through 8, we have commendation. Beloved, it's a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testify to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. So, so here's, he goes into more detail now of, of what this living in the truth looks like. Uh, Gaius is faithful. He keeps that. He does what he's supposed to do. He's He's working. It's action, not just talk. That work is driven and displays love, this self-sacrificing love like Jesus showed for us. 
And, and this has been shared before the church. These brothers that he ministered to have told the church. When they got back, they told the church about it. The entire congregation of which John was a part were blessed by the report that the brothers brought back about Gaius. You realize that when you serve Jesus and you serve others well and you impact their lives, that that, that impact doesn't stop with them. It, it extends to those that they touch as well. You'll notice that it says that these were brothers, but they were strangers at the same time. Well, they were brothers in Christ, but they were strangers to Gaius. He evidently hadn't, didn't know them well, maybe hadn't even met them before. But he received them, not because he already knew them well, but because they knew Christ and were therefore family in the Lord. The word hospitality means a lover of strangers, to be hospitable. You love strangers. In other words, you're you're showing kindness, you're housing people, you're feeding them, aren't necessarily part of your family, they're, they're outsiders, but you're going to treat them like family. And Gaius did that for these brothers. He sent them on their way to fulfill their gospel mission, and he did so in a manner worthy of God. In other words, he did so in keeping with the reality that the mission they were on was given to them by God, the Great Commission. So their gospel effort was a God thing, and, and Gaius providing for them is also keeping with, with the generosity that God has towards his servants. Stingy Christianity is a contradiction of terms. It, it's a denial of God's very character. Third John 1, 7, he says, For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. What does it mean, they've gone out for the sake of the name? Well, the name, anybody's name and when you speak of God's name, is the revealed character of a person. And in particular, this is the name of Jesus. They're traveling to spread the good news of, of a God, um, of who God is and, and what God has done through Christ. If you think about it, the, the gospel is all about making known to people that, that don't know God, making known to them who God actually is, that He is righteous and that He's compassionate, that, that in His goodness He has made a way to rescue sinners deserving of His wrath and to give them instead an eternal inheritance in the Messiah Jesus. There's lots of people that speak badly about God. They, they don't understand who God is, or they, they say, well, nobody can know who He is. And the gospel, the good news is, your God reigns. Your God is a redeemer. Your God's the creator. Your God's a sustainer. Your God is a good God. Your God loves you and has proven that love. They've gone out for the sake of the name. In a broken world like this one, full of broken people like us, we desperately need someone to testify of a God who is making all things new. The present just as we've seen this week, is full of heartbreaking tragedies, of disease and violence and disillusionment. But God promises a bright future and a sure hope. The present darkness and pain come from the curse of sin, but Christ has come to bear that all away. He has suffered in His own body to bear the brunt of the curse that we might be freed from it. That is good news, worth taking to the ends of the earth, to all ethnicities, where we all are slaves to sin and death, and we all need deliverance that only God can accomplish.
for the sake of the name. It is fitting that those who have come to trust in this good news for real should underwrite the expense of spreading it abroad rather than expecting those who are not yet convinced to foot the bill. Thus, they were accepting nothing from the Gentiles, John says, that is, from those that are still without God and without hope in the world, strangers to the covenants of promise. Christian missionaries were not to be like those ancient hawkers of religion, vagrants making merchandise of the people that gave them audience, fleecing the sheep and demanding payment for their religious tricks and performances. They were underwritten by fellow workers. They were underwritten by generosity of the saints who are working together to see the gospel spread. Therefore, we ought to support people like these that we may be fellow workers for the truth. What Gaius has done for these missionary brothers is what all of us who know the Lord should be doing. That's why there is a missions budget. That, that's why we have mission houses. That, that's why we want to extend ourselves and our goods to help them on their way. It's the way God wants us to take part in the expansion of the gospel to those who don't know God yet. Our practical participation in hospitality and in financial support of missionaries makes us fellow workers with them for the truth. What we're, what we're doing is trying to, to make it possible for them to do what they do, uh, to, to give them the tools and resources they need. With the mention of the truth, John has come full circle. Gaius and all those like him are living out the truth in their daily lives, and part of that living out the truth involves helping spread the truth to those who have yet to believe in Jesus. And for every person who actually believes, it will change their lives too. Over the course of human history, whole cities and countries and civilizations have been turned from darkness to light. When the light shines from our lives, it plants itself in the lives of others. It displaces the darkness that once tyrannized their lives. So all of us who are truly born-again believers in Jesus are working together to fulfill this epic mission. It's the, it's the greatest thing happening on the planet, calling out a people for his own. It's given to all disciples of Jesus by the Savior King himself. This is love in truth. This is truth generating love. It shines with the love of God himself. It is living what you know. It is loving in truth. So in what ways are you opening your heart and your hands and your home to others, especially believers on gospel mission? How are you making your home a, a lighthouse is your giving consistent, uh, worthy of God in that we're on mission for the name of Jesus uh, who gave us this mission? Are you, would you be classed by the Apostle John, would you be classed as a fellow worker for the kingdom of God? That's what we want to be. That is love in truth. May our lives be characterized by what John displays here, prayer for one another, 
joy in what we see happening in the lives of those we've invested in, and then commendation of great faithfulness, love.